0: com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 70. My dad is back on the program. Now, before we get started today, I just want to remind you if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. Also, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page, and also go to my homepage, brianmcclanahan.com, and sign up for my email list. You get a free ebook, Forgotten Founders in American History, and also a free audiobook of that particular book, Read by Yours Truly. So go on out there and do that. You'll get an email from me, you know, maybe once a week or so. So it's not uh, overbearing, but uh, you also get that free stuff, and I'll be able to let you know about any other promotions and other things I'll be doing. Coming up for the promotion of my newest book, which will be out in September, "How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America." So come on out and uh, get those things. So let's talk about uh, the topic for today. It's actually more of a current event. You know, I did a little culture on Tuesday, and uh, I saw that uh, Larry King had gone on, uh, gone on the air a few days ago, a couple days ago, and had said <clears throat> that. Trump is the most one of the most ridiculous presidents ever. And uh, so I thought it would be fun to talk about this and the reasoning that he used behind this. First of all, uh, as Trump being one of the most ridiculous presidents ever, I can think of a lot worse. Now, I mean, Trump, of course, is not uh, anything great. Uh, there's a lot of problems with Donald Trump as president. But uh, I wrote a book about this, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. And I think that um, when you look at several of the presidents of the last uh Last uh, 30 years or so, you think about Barack Obama, he was fairly ridiculous as president. The man had no experience leading into the office. Uh, George W. Bush, same thing. Uh, and you can go back, uh, you know, Harry Truman was a ridiculous president. Here's a guy that was a haberdasher, for, for example. Uh, so, I mean, we can find all kinds of examples of ridiculous presidents. But the thing that really gets uh, Larry King irritated is that uh, Trump's cabinet is, uh, he, he thinks, awful. And so uh, one of the uh, two of the positions he pointed out, uh, he said, quote, it's almost funny uh, that uh, Scott Pruitt is running the EPA, he said, because he's an anti-environment guy. To run the Department of Education, he hires someone who doesn't like education, doesn't like public schools. And so he's speaking of uh, Betsy DeVos. So uh, and he said, that's weird, man. So he's, he, he's yeah, man peace, love. So uh, he thinks that um, it's weird that Trump has appointed a couple of people who are supposedly, uh, to run these uh, different departments, who are supposedly uh, anti-department, meaning that they don't support the agenda of the department. So this actually, I wanted to to explain that and then talk about maybe a couple of cabinets that actually were pretty crazy, or some individuals in some cabinets who are pretty crazy, and then uh, discuss a couple of cabinets that I think were pretty good. Uh, So first of all, this actually shows, what Larry King is saying here is showing that we have a major problem in America. Our conception of government um, is that once a department is created, it can't be destroyed. So what we need is we need to expand government, we need to expand bureaucracy, and then uh, we need to put people in those cabinet positions that just completely agree with the cabinet position itself, completely agree with the agenda of the cabinet position. So in this case, we have two positions, Department of Education and the EPA, that shouldn't even exist. Uh, When you look at the United States Constitution, the general government has no role in education. So this is a position for years that people have talked about getting rid of, the Department of Education. Now, I know that people say, well, my gosh, if we get rid of the Department of Education, then what are we going to do about education? Well, what did we do about education before the Department of Education? Uh, the states handled this uh, situation, and uh, generally that's the way it was considered. This was a state issue. Uh, also, if you want to say, well, what about student loans and these other things? Well, those other, uh, uh, those other items could be rolled into different departments, and we don't have to have a Department of Education to handle these things. So this whole idea that we need a Department of Education is flawed to begin with, and why not? If you don't really agree with the agenda, why not put somebody in there that doesn't necessarily agree with the Department of Education? Now, I could argue that Betsy DeVos doesn't necessarily believe that. I mean, um, she hasn't really shown that she's um, anti-Department of Education. Um, she has supported uh, you know, vouchers and other things and charter schools, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's against education. And again, the federal government has no constitutional role in education to begin with. So why not put somebody in that department that doesn't agree with the Role of the Department of Education. How about the EPA? This is the gift that keeps on giving from Richard Nixon, another president who I consider to be uh, one of the most ridiculous. Uh, but at least Nixon had a had a had a resume before he became president. Um, you know, some of the people I just mentioned. Of course, even Obama himself didn't really have a resume. And I know you can say, well, Donald Trump didn't really have a resume to become president. But um, at least the man had successful businesses. Uh, so. Uh, that's better in my in my estimation than than being a career politician. So what about the EPA? This is this thing was to create was created by the Nixon administration, uh, in a way to um, you know out Democrat the Democrats at the time. You know, look at me, I'm gonna I'm I'm all for uh, environmental regulations because I think these things are important. And of course now that we have the EPA, we seem to think that somebody that goes into the EPA needs to believe in heavy-handed government regulation and. Uh, you know, global warming, and that's where that's where King was really hard on Trump because, you know, he says that Miami's not going to exist by the year 2100. How do we know that? We're looking at computer models that are flawed. Uh, the weather, we can't even predict the weather a day out oftentimes. It changes so fast. So we're saying we know what's going to happen 100 years from now? It's just ridiculous. So to make these statements shows how actually stupid Larry King is. So he says... We have a terrible cabinet because we've got people like Pruitt and DeVos, or DeVos, I should say. Uh, But let's talk about a couple of cabinets that I think really were uh, ridiculous, and a couple of cabinet members that I think were ridiculous throughout history. So let's just go back to the man that's often considered to be one of the greatest presidents in American history, and that's Franklin Roosevelt. He had a couple of individuals in his cabinet that were crazy, Um, Harold Ickes and and Harry Hopkins. Uh, Ickes was uh, very instrumental in in putting the New Deal into effect, along with Francis Perkins, um, who I think was also a crazy cabinet member. But uh, Ickes, during the lead-up to World War II, actually singled out Charles Lindbergh uh, and used the full force of the government to uh, persecute Lindbergh in the press, uh, behind the scenes. And this is unprecedented. Uh, Because Lindbergh opposed entry into the war, Ickes did a full-court press on Charles Lindbergh and tried to portray him as some Nazi sympathizer, which is simply not true. I think there's—I actually did a podcast on Charles Lindbergh. But um, this, again, um, is—we're seeing it now with Susan Rice and potentially going after, uh, you know, uh, Trump—potential Trump appointees or people in the Trump uh, uh, circle— before the before he was inaugurated during you know right after he received the nomination so i mean we we have we have examples of this but when this happened in the 1940s never really happened before that we had an administration go after a private individual like that i mean i think you can go back to uh, the period of the john adams administration and the in the alien and sedition acts but uh, that was through legislation in this particular case, I just single somebody out and say, you know what, we're scared of this guy. This is exactly what the Obama administration was doing to uh, the Trump, uh, incoming Trump administration, before he was even president. They were looking into uh, the Trump circle and trying to figure out were any of these people committing treason or were they conspiring with the Russians, all these silly things that, of course, have been uh, dredged up here recently. So I mean, Susan Rice had uh, had an example in Harold Ickes, and then you have Harry Hopkins, who was a known communist uh, in the uh, FDR administration. Now, some would say, "Well, this guy really wasn't a communist; he was uh, just out there, um, you know, he was anti-Nazi, so he's going to be pro-Soviet." Um, I don't think so. Harry Hopkins was a communist, and uh, I mean, he was a, he was a, a crazy cabinet appointee, uh, but yet. Because it's FDR, we have to think, well, these people were great. They had, uh, you know, great pedigrees, and, uh, you know, they're, they're great men, uh, Harold Ickes. And, of course, because uh, Ickes' son served in the Clinton administration. Well, I mean, Her- Harold Ickes is, is uh, great. You know, we, we have to love this guy. Um, so I think those two cabinet members were, were pretty crazy. Ridiculous. Um, and, I mean, so I, w- I would— Contest with Larry King. Well, what about these guys? Now, of course, you, you can't say uh, Harold Ickes uh, and, and, and Harry Hopkins even compared to the guys I mentioned. I mean, Scott Pruitt and Betsy DeVos, I mean, they're so far inferior to Ickes and Hopkins. Well, how so? Uh, I think you can make a case that both Ickes and Hopkins were pretty, pretty awful. How about uh, Andrew Jackson, one of the other presidents who screwed up America? His appointment of Roger Tawney as Secretary of the Treasury was pretty bad. Uh, This is a guy that broke the law uh, to remove the bank deposits from the Bank of the United States. While I agree the Bank of the United States was a problem and was unconstitutional, to go out and break the law to get rid of it, that's not really what you do. So here's a guy that was willfully breaking the law as Secretary of Treasury. So that was a pretty bad cabinet appointment. Uh, And then I could even go back to Alexander Hamilton. Now, Hamilton had a, again, as far as a, a great mind, there's no doubt about it, um, and Hamilton was a real patriot, but he was a problem in the cabinet. He viewed his position as basically prime minister, and he acted as, that, he acted as such in the cabinet. Here's a guy that, uh, before Jefferson was uh, in, in, in New York, was acting as secretary of state. He was committing treason, essentially, uh, by acting with British agents and uh, undermining the Washington foreign policy. Uh, so of course gave us uh, the Bank of the United States and um, you know the broad interpretation of the Constitution at that time. So I think that you know you can look at uh, Hamilton as a pretty awful cabinet appointment as well. Now no one would say that a Hamilton, my gosh, this guy's great. Well, this is one of the reasons why I say Hamilton screwed up America um, in in my forthcoming book. So if you want to see that uh, half the book is dedicated to Hamilton, the other half to to some other people, but. Um, Hamilton is the, uh, is the intellectual father of all things bad today in terms of our understanding of the Constitution. So uh, I, I don't think you can, you can say that uh, these two people are the worst people in American history. Plus, it's also indicative of our perception of the cabinet. We think the cabinet should do all these kind of crazy things. Uh, the cabinet was simply there to be an advisory group. And I think the founding generation wanted something like that. They wanted the president to have some type of, of a, a, a circle of advisors, um, which is why the, the Senate had a role in confirming these people. But uh, to think that they have so much power is, again, problematic in that we believe that this bureaucracy is completely constitutional and necessary uh, in Washington, D.C., but it's not. Uh, so this is a real problem of a blow to bureaucracy. Um, too much regulation, too much government control, and we think that the EPA, the Department of Education, I mean Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Homeland, Homeland Security, whatever we have up there, all these things are necessary. They're not. Uh, and most of them do things that are completely unconstitutional. They shouldn't even be there. So, uh, again, if you look at the Constitution as written and then ratified, uh, we wouldn't even have these cabinet positions. So let's talk about a couple of cabinets that I think are pretty good, uh, at least the people in those cabinets. And this is not going to be, you know, your standard, fair American textbook that you get uh, in in your uh, high school or college or junior high school history courses. I'm going to talk about two cabinets, or at least a part of a cabinet and then a whole cabinet, that I thought were pretty good. Um, And... uh, it's not going to be Lincoln's team of rivals, you know, Doris Kearns uh, Goodwin, who had her team of rivals, which, of course, she just makes stuff up. Um, you know, it's a known plagiarizer. Um, it's not that. Or, you know, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, great cabinet. Or, you know, take your pick of, uh, you know, these, these uh, presidents who are uh, completely abusing executive power. It's not going to be any of those guys. It's going to be a couple of presidents that I think were good presidents uh, and had decent cabinets. And the first would be John Tyler. Of course, I've called him the greatest president in American history, at least in terms of how, uh, how the Constitution was ratified and in upholding his oath of office, which was uh, to defend the Constitution of the United States. And so he had two cabinet members that I thought were first class, and that would be Abel Upshur and John C. Calhoun, both as Secretary of State, which at the time was the most important cabinet position. I think you could you could make that case. Uh, so Upshur was Secretary of Navy and then later Secretary of State, and he was killed on the USS Princeton when it blew up, a cannon blew up in his face and, uh, during a uh, training exercise, you know, a demonstration, actually. Uh, so Abel Upshur is one of these uh, unknown, unknown people in American history, but so important. Um, he wrote a wonderful little treatise on the Constitution where he completely ripped apart Joseph Story's fabricated vision of America and uh, Joseph Story's commentaries, and so Upshur takes him to task and does a very good job of this. You know, Upshur was from the eastern shore of Virginia, he lived on the Delmarva Peninsula, and his home is still there, from what I understand, or at least his former plantation is still there. Uh, but uh, Upshur was um, instrumental in, this, uh, in, in coming through with a position of, uh, of strength when it comes to the states vis-a-vis the, the general government. And when you read this little book on the Constitution, uh, he makes it clear that the compact theory, quote-unquote, was actually the compact fact Of the Constitution. I think that you can't argue that Upshur was right on the money with that. So here's a guy that I think was just an outstanding uh, member of of a cabinet, a great choice, a great legal mind. Um, And then when he dies, John C. Calhoun is appointed Secretary of State. And again, uh, you can't find someone that had a better legal mind in regard to the role of the general government vis a vis the states. And I uh, had, a, had a friend of mine ask me the other day, you know, why, why, what kind of defense could you give for John C. Calhoun? And I said, well, look, uh, you can't argue that Calhoun was one of the greatest statesmen in American history. Uh, people from all over the world would contact Clyde Wilson, who was my advisor in graduate school, about John C. Calhoun and his political theories, political philosophy. Nobody does that from really anybody else in American history. I mean, he's recognized around the world as a great political thinker. Uh, and you know, up there with Jefferson, for example, or even you know Hamilton or Madison. I mean, this is, these are people that people in, a, in Europe think, oh, these are great American political thinkers. Uh, and Calhoun is, is among those people. You wouldn't say that about Henry Clay or Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster actually called Calhoun the last of the Romans. I mean, here's his arch enemy uh, in the Senate who stands up after Calhoun dies and says this was a great man. He was the last of the Romans, principled to his core. So, Calhoun won over friend and foe alike with his uh, principal defense of American federalism. Now, the purists, the, the old Republicans, didn't think Calhoun was, Calhoun was really a purist, and so they were suspicious of Calhoun. And I think you can make a case that there were times that Calhoun was not a purist, uh, he was a nationalist. And um, I think that Calhoun's position was always union. And this is where I would say we've inverted the entire process and we've got things backwards in American history where we think that the the states were always the problem. Actually, it was the nationalists who were always the problem. But it was a type of American nationalism that was actually northern sectionalism. Uh, Southern nationalism, which was expressed by people like James Madison even uh, during his uh, time as president, was really in spirit of the union. Well, even though these things may not be uh, you know, constitutional, I mean, Madison was saying, you know, bank, internal improvements. Yeah, I mean, I, I could say that, you know, the, the, the internal improvements in particular are not constitutional, but they're in the best spirit of the union. Uh, that was that was Calhoun. You know, he voted for the tariff of 1816. Uh, he, in fact, at one time favored internal improvements uh, because he thought this would be in the best interest of the union and the bonus bill. And then he made an argument for this uh, when he was talking about Uh, The West, And he said, these Westerners want these internal improvements, so we should think about it. Uh, But here's a guy that really believed in the Union, even if it didn't benefit the South at all times. You can't say that about the North. Their nationalism was really American or Northern sectionalism. So um, you look at uh, John Tyler's cabinet, a couple of good guys, but I think as a complete cabinet, you have to look at Franklin Pierce's cabinet as a very good cabinet. And um, you look at the people in it. And these are not household names, um, but I think, uh, f- well, four people in this cabinet really stand out. And of course, this cabinet only had uh, you know uh, seven people in it. So half the cabinet, I think, are, are standout individuals. Caleb Cushing, who was the attorney general at the time, uh, was fantastic as attorney general. Uh, and I think you can't uh, get around the fact that, uh, you know, Cushing was one of the Best legal minds in America. Uh, in the time leading up to the war, um, he was he was interested in real federalism. Now he opposed uh, secession, uh, but uh, this is a guy from Massachusetts. I mean, that's also interesting. Here's a, here's a northerner, just like Franklin Pierce, who was very much interested in this conception of federalism and what that meant and what that what that still meant to the union. Um, I think you could criticize his. Um, his support for the Dred Scott decision in that the uh, legal logic behind it was flawed, but still uh, he was a real unionist, meaning that he supported the union where each section was uh, burdened equally by the union and benefited equally from the union. Uh, he actually presided over uh, the uh, splinter uh, democratic uh, group that uh, nominated John Breckinridge and, um, and so, I mean, this is a guy that was uh, so important in trying to maintain this, this union that uh, the, he believed the Republican Party was going to destroy, and he was right about that. Uh, how about William Marcy, uh, the Secretary of State? Uh, William Marcy had a wonderful uh, quote that he from 1856. He said this, The United States consider powerful navies and large standing armies as permanent establishments to be detrimental to national prosperity and dangerous to civil liberty. The expense of keeping them up is burdensome to the people. They are in some degree a menace to peace among nations. A large force ever ready to be devoted to the purposes of war is a temptation to rush into it. The policy of the United States has ever been, and never more than now, adverse to such establishments. And they can never be brought to acquiescence in any charge, and any change. I'm sorry, international law, which may render it necessary for them to maintain a powerful navy or large standing army in time of peace. So, uh, here's a guy saying we don't need large standing armies. Um, he was a again, um, uh, another man from Massachusetts, who um, you know did not believe in a national union or a union dominated by the North. He very much believed in this original union of the founders. Uh, Later, he was governor of New York. Um, But uh, I think that um, when you look at two of these guys, and they're both Northerners, but they believe in the spirit of union uh, to the end. Uh, Or how about uh, James Guthrie, who was uh, uh, Pierce's secretary of the treasury. Guthrie was a hard money man, uh, he, paid, he, he paid down the debt as Treasury uh, secretary, uh, secretary of Treasury, cut it in half, actually, uh, because of uh, his hard money policies. I mean, he was uh, from Kentucky, so he's a Southerner. Again, a guy that was uh, opposed to secession and worked very hard to try to keep the union together under the original Constitution. Uh, it didn't work out. But uh, James Guthrie was uh, a wonderful Secretary of the Treasury, somebody who believed in, in real American finance. Uh, something that we haven't had in a very long time, uh, but a, a great cabinet member. And then, of course, you have Jefferson Davis, who is often pointed out, oh, my gosh, you got uh, Franklin Pearson, you got this guy Jefferson Davis, and he's awful because he later was president of the Confederacy. Well, as Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis uh, was uh, instrumental in modernizing the U.S. Army, and, of course, even though it was very small at this time, and I think that, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, um, when you look at uh, Marcy and what he had to say about uh, standing armies, uh, Davis was a West Pointer. So he did believe in a small professional army. And he wanted to ensure that it was paid properly and also uh, outfitted properly and organized properly. And I think Jefferson Davis's uh, reforms for the U.S. Army actually undermined his efforts as uh, president of the Confederacy because it was Jefferson Davis's military reforms that led to the U.S. Army that defeated the Confederacy. So I don't think that you can make a case that Davis didn't have a good military mind. I know that um, he's often criticized for his handling of the war for the South. But uh, as Secretary of War, he was instrumental in, in making sure that the United States Army was modernized and up to the task, should it have to defend the United States. Uh, he also was uh, important in uh, the... Uh, Redesign of the U.S. Capitol building—you can go there today, and you can see that Davis was behind much of this uh, uh, much of this uh, progress that was made in the 1850s of uh, modernizing the U.S. Capitol, uh, bringing uh, fresh water uh, into the uh, into the United States uh, Capitol. Uh, I mean, this is um, something that you know we don't um, often think about, uh, but uh, you know, Davis. Was there as a Secretary of War, and uh, he was uh, responsible for constructing the Washington Aqueduct. So, um, this is something that's interesting. We we don't we don't realize this, but you know, part of the problem with D.C. in the eighteen forties and fifties was the was the sewage issue that actually is thought now to have killed three presidents: uh, William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, and James K. Polk. But they had a terrible water situation in D.C. It's a swamp. And so as Secretary of War, uh, Davis was responsible for bringing in uh, fresh water to D.C. through this Washington aqueduct uh, and, of course, also managing the expansion of the U.S. Capitol Building. Uh, he also was uh, instrumental in the Gadsden Purchase, uh, which added territory to the United States. Uh, so Davis was a was a fantastic Secretary of War uh, and a very good friend of Franklin Pierce, and they stayed that way, um, you know, even— um, even uh, during the war. uh, Pierce was opposed to the war. So I think that one of the greatest cabinets in American history has to be the cabinet of Franklin Pierce. Uh, You had four guys there that were just so good at their job uh, and interested in this real union, uh, a real federal union, not one where one section or another dominates. Uh, You have two Northerners, Marcy and, and Cushing, and two Southerners, Guthrie and Davis, who understood the true spirit of union and understood what union meant. Uh, and particularly with Guthrie and Davis, you look at what they were able to do. Uh, Guthrie and his hard money policies and uh, actually uh, minting silver. That we, we started doing that also, um, you know, trying to get rid of some of this fluctuating currency, hard money policy, paying down the debt. I mean, wouldn't that be refreshing today to actually have somebody in the, in the Treasury Department that was interested in that exact same policy? And, of course, you can... Look at, uh, you know, other secretaries and, and what they were able to do uh, in their time uh, as uh, in their various cabinet positions. Uh, but I think overall, when you look at a great cabinet, a collection of people, I think you have to look at uh, Franklin Pierce's cabinet as one of the best in American history, without question. It's not going to be – this is not a popular position. It's not the team of rivals, quote unquote, where you have, uh, you know, Lincoln's cabinet, which is supposedly fantastic. Um, I disagree. Or it's not, uh, you know, the the cabinet of Franklin Roosevelt, which had all these big government guys in it that were expanding government and giving us the New Deal and all these things. Uh, Of course, the modern left is going to think they're great. Uh, I would hardly disagree. I I think that probably 30 years from now, people are going to look back at the Obama cabinet and fawn over it. Oh, gosh, it's so good. Uh, I think it's awful. Um, And, again, looking at, uh, you know, people that uh, were ridiculous as president, I think you can pick out people— If you want to say Trump is ridiculous, that we're just as ridiculous, if not worse uh, than president Trump. So Trump is a, is a symptom of the disease, which is, uh, you know, big government. Um, And Larry King and his statements are a symptom of the disease where we think that cabinet positions should do all these things and cabinet, uh, uh, you know, heads should do all these things. And that once we have a cabinet position, we can't get rid of it. I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous in and of itself. So, um, I think that it's important to understand a little bit of historical perspective here. And if we want to look at uh, cabinet uh, and say that these, these individuals did their job well, well, I think you have to look at the Pierce administration uh, for inspiration. We're not going to do it. We're going to look at Lincoln's team of rivals or Franklin Roosevelt's uh, you know, awful cabinet. Those are the, those are the cabinets we're going to look at. But I think you could find throughout history also ridiculous appointees who did much to damage the United States, foremost among them. Alexander Hamilton. Now, he's not ridiculous in who he was, but he's ridiculous in, in the things that he did while he was in that position. So um, Larry King uh, is wrong on so many levels. Uh, and if he actually had uh, any type of historical perspective, I know that he has it because he's about 100 years old. And, um, you know, he thinks that he knows quite a bit as a, as a radio talk show host that falls asleep when people are on the air. Um, but I think that in terms of, you know, what he said, it's, it's so far out there, but people don't even call them on these things because you just nod your head, oh yeah, yeah, I mean we got uh, you know, yeah, we got this cabinet position, so we need these these uh, you know very aggressive cabinet members. It's just simply not true. Uh, I think that uh, if you're going to have uh, a belief that these cabinet positions are unnecessary, then you put people in those positions who would undermine what that cabinet position is supposed to do. Uh, and that if, if we can't abolish it, we'll then get people in there who are not going to do the job the way that uh, the progressives, or the uh, left would want those positions done. So I I actually applaud Trump for that and trying to think of people who would uh, do a job uh, to uh, work against this massive uh, bureaucracy and this bloated bureaucracy that we really don't need. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.